Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I just want to open with a quick word of prayer before we dig into this. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and this time that we can come together and gather in your presence um, to read your word and partake of the sacraments. Lord, I pray that you would be with me, that I would decrease and that you would increase. May the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So it's a blessing to be here with you guys today. Obviously, I am not Pastor Wayne. He is on his way, or he is in New York currently. Uh, We pray for safe travels for him. Uh, My name is Shane Peterson. I am the pastoral intern as well as ruling elder at Trinity Presbyterian Church in Waukesha, Wisconsin. I think this is my third time being here. I see a lot of familiar faces, some new ones, but as a blessing as always to be here with you. I also want to say Happy Mother's Day to all you mothers uh, in here, mothers, grandmothers, and so on and so forth. Um, You truly are a blessing to the kingdom of God, and uh, you are truly appreciated. Um, And I say all that to say that my sermon has nothing to do with Mother's Day. So um, I'm going to continue in the epistle of 1 John. Last time I was here, uh, we did the the passage before this. Um, We spent time going over what it means to be walking in the light. Uh, We talked about what it means to be a Christian and yet still have sin, Uh, what we are to do when we sin, namely confess our sins so we can be forgiven. But we discussed how important it is to live uh, as we are forgiven and to live as a child of God, Uh, how we are in such great need of mercy and of grace uh, that we also need to extend that same mercy and grace to others. Um. Earlier in the passage, it talks about propitiation, how Jesus is our covering, our firmament in these new heavens and new earth, how we are part of God's covenant family. The way that God deals with his people is through the covenants. And this epistle focuses mainly on assurance, our assurance, how we can know that we are in Christ. And the portion of the text that we are looking at today is another kind of test we can do to check ourselves and our status as far as being in the body of Christ. Uh, if you're uh, going to take notes, uh, I'll keep the outline pretty simple for you. Um, the first point I'm going to deal with is obedience. Obedience. Uh, the second point is love. I told you I'm keeping it real simple. And the third point is unity. Uh, You're going to see that the second point, love, is really what underlies all three points. So the focus on this sermon today is love. Uh, 
That's why it's titled The Love of God Perfected. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and dig in. Point one, obedience. In verse three, it says, Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. And by this, we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Now remember, this, is, this whole epistle is predominantly about our assurance. So Christians, uh, like we still struggle with sin uh, while we are in this body of flesh. Uh, what are we to do when that happens? We have a faithful God and a faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who intercedes on our behalf when we ask him for forgiveness, and he forgives us of our sins. That's why we did our confession. We do that at the beginning of the services. Uh, we fail, and Jesus is not only faithful, but he's just to forgive us our sins, as it says earlier in this epistle. This works because we are under his covering, that firmament of the new heavens and the new earth. He is our covering. We are in covenant with him, and as such, there are stipulations to that covenant. There are conditions of being in the covenant. This is true for the covenants all throughout the scriptures. Uh, the model of the covenant is based off of the ancient Near East uh, suzerain treaty. Um, Exodus 20, where we have the giving of the law, um, the Ten Commandments, is laid out like one of these treaties. It begins first with the naming of the initiator, God, who initiates this covenant. Then there's a historical prologue. In this case, it begins with, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then what comes forth after that is the stipulations, the commandments. And then as we go through Leviticus after that, there's, there's blessings and cursings. Uh, that's for obeying and disobeying the stipulations. Well, here we have a stipulation to our being in covenant. As covenant people of God, we are to keep his commandments. And John already told us that we can ask for forgiveness when we stumble. But here, we get a test with clear implications. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Knowing that we know him. What does it mean to know something? We can know stuff about a thing and not yet truly know that thing. Here's an example. I can read all kinds of books about machining and welding. Um, I can know a lot about it, but I wouldn't actually know machining and welding without truly experiencing it firsthand. And to be clear, that doesn't mean just trying it a couple of times. You have to truly do a thing repeatedly and be involved in that to experientially know something. The same is true for anything, especially God. You can know a whole lot about God. Uh, some unbelievers know a whole lot about God. Uh, you go to your average mainline Christian seminary nowadays, there's a lot of people that know a lot about God. You can read theology books till the words are falling out of your head. And there is some benefit to that, to be sure, but it's not the same thing as experientially knowing God. If I hadn't met my wife, but I was shown a picture of her, and I, I read stuff about her, and her friends told me all kinds of things. I could know about her, but I wouldn't know my wife. You only get to truly know things and people by 
engaging with and experiencing them. Now, many people, I think, uh, misunderstand what John is saying in this verse. Now, by this, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. It's not to be read like a checklist. This isn't saying, if you want to know God, then you have to keep his commandments. This is saying that those that truly know Jesus will keep his commandments. This is a test of our obedience. We want to know if we are in Christ. We want to know if we are walking in the light as he is in the light. Are we going to keep every one of his commandments all the time? No, we're not. Should we be keeping his commandments all the time? Absolutely. Does God know that we are going to fail to keep his commandments? He does. And this is why he's given us confession Repentance. This is why he's given us the ability to come to him. But what about the statement here in verse 4? He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. This is a pretty plain, clear, and terrifying statement to read on its face. And it should be jarring to us. If we say that we know Jesus intimately, as in a relationship, and we don't keep his commandments, then we are a liar and the truth is not in us. John just said, those who know Jesus will keep his commandments. We also recognize that we're not sinless perfectionists. We are going to fail. And so if you leave here today and break one of the commandments, does that mean that you're a liar and not a Christian? No. Again, it isn't as black and white as a plain text reading would indicate. Uh, It's absolutely true that obedience is required for the child of God. I had mentioned before we are his covenant children and their stipulations in the covenant. Remember, God first called the people of Israel out of Egypt to himself, and then he gave them his commandments, his law, his instructions. But again, God has given us his son as intercessor, and John just told us if we confess our sins, which is the breaking of God's commandments, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we are forgiven, then we are forgiven. We are no longer unrighteous, but we are righteous by virtue of Christ. The whole point here is that of obedience. It's the principle of obedience. Our obedience includes a heart of repentance. It's not only about our external behavior, although that our behavior is clearly important. John just said it. We should not be making a habit or a practice of sin. But when we do stumble, when we do slip into a sin, we need to be quick to repent. We need to keep short accounts with those around us and especially with the creator of the universe. Remember, this is about a relationship with Jesus. Think of it like a marriage. Marriage is a covenant. We are the bride of Christ. When we sin, we are fracturing that relationship. We need to confess our mistake and ask for forgiveness. Just like in our own marriages, if we mess up, if we sin, we need to keep short accounts and ask for forgiveness right away, admit our wrongdoing. When we don't confess and ask for forgiveness right away, um, a root of bitterness can spring up. And when we sin and don't make it right and restore that fellowship, we continue to fracture that relationship. We must maintain trust and communication, and it needs to be founded on our love and commitment in this covenant. Since we are the bride of Christ, we need to be obedient and reverent to Christ because he is our head. Therefore, we need to keep his word. 
verse 5, whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. If we keep God's word, then truly the love of God is perfected in us. What word? Is John talking about something specific, like the moral law, you know, the Ten Commandments? Is that what he means? I don't necessarily think it's limited to that. I think it includes that, but I don't think it's limited to that. In one sense, I do think it is referring to the moral law, which is also known as the Ten Words. So we've got to keep his word. Um, but I think it's referring to the whole of Scripture, the law, the prophets, the wisdom literature, the epistles, the gospels, everything. I also believe that John would have had the majority of the New Testament in mind as well, since I believe John's writings here were completed, were what they completed the canon as far as dating goes. And here's the beautiful bridge into verse 6. Uh, we are called to keep his word, and in doing so, the love of God is perfected in us. Well, John, who wrote this, also wrote in his gospel that Jesus is the word became flesh. So keeping his word means keeping him. More simply, these verses 5 and 6 are saying, if we want the love of God perfected in us, we need to not only do what he says, but to do what he did. It says, if you, if you say that you abide in him, you will walk as he walked. It isn't a checklist. It's a way of life. What did Jesus do? How do we walk as Jesus walked? Jesus walked with the love of God perfected in him because he, was, he is God. God is love. Now let's move to the second point before I get ahead of myself here. Love. Verse 7, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. These two passages, they tie in directly with verses 3 and 4 that we went through earlier with the talk of keeping commandments and walking as he walked. Now, at first glance, this seems confusing, almost like John is contradicting himself. What does he mean that this is an old commandment that he writes to us, but also not a new commandment? But then in verse 8, again, a new commandment I write to you. Well, rest assured that this is not a contradiction. It is a way of speaking. He is saying, what I'm telling you is not new, but it's new to you in a certain sense. Um, he's going from the broad to the more precise. And to get a better understanding of what John is getting at here, uh, let's take a look at the original languages. Uh, in the New Testament, there's a number of places where the translators have placed the word new in English. Uh, but there are two different words that are commonly translated as new, and they have a different meaning to them. One is neos. Neos means new, but it means in a reference to time or a more recent time. So in Matthew 9 or in Mark 2, when it's talking about not putting new wine into old wine skins, new there is neos. It also refers to age. So someone who is young is neos. 
The other word for new is kainos. Kainos means new, but it means a better quality or something improved. It's not necessarily new in time. Or it can mean a different nature from the old. There can be overlap in meaning, but this is the simplified idea. Uh, in Revelation, the new Jerusalem is kainos. Uh, the new heavens and the new earth, kainos. He gives us a new name, kainos. And here, the new commandment John gives is kainos. It's of a better quality. It's not brand new. So what is the old commandment that we had from the beginning? This is referring to the two greatest commandments, which is the summation of the whole law. It can be found in Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. Uh, Jesus refers to these in Mark 12. He says in Mark 12.28, Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second like it is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one neighbor as oneself, is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared to question him. I want to draw attention to the fact that this scribe who was talking to Jesus there answered wisely. He had his understanding in order as far as God's word is concerned and what was required of him. Whether or not this specific scribe ended up believing Jesus was the Messiah is not mentioned. I'm not going to speculate, but I want to point out Jesus' response. He says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. I believe this is layered in meaning. First, because this guy truly had a grasp on the things of God, the scribes knew the word. Uh, this guy knew the importance of loving God and loving neighbor over all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. We know that all those pointed to Jesus anyway. I would imagine this guy knew that those sacrifices were types of the Messiah to come as well. But what I think is also in this meaning is that the kingdom is all around us, though we can't see it because our senses are dull with sin. I mentioned this last time I was here. And it's reiterated in our sermon text back in verse 8. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Here's the deal. The new commandment is the same as the old, but in a new way. It's the summation of the law, to love God and to love neighbor. It's new because it's fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus did it all perfectly. He obeyed the law and he loved perfectly. He is our example. He came to this earth as a man. He humbled himself, putting himself under the law, and he was obedient to the point of death, even the accursed death of the cross, Philippians 2. And not for his sake, but for ours. We don't deserve it. We can't do it for ourselves. Adam didn't do it. God didn't need to do it. He could have left us all to perish. This was 100% a demonstration of his love 
for his creation and wanting to restore man to his complete image in Christ to rule with him. It was all out of love. Everything Jesus did was the summation of the Torah, his instruction, his love for the Father and love of fellow man. And those two are not at odds. He did both at all times. Jesus is God. He was a perfect man. And yet he humbled himself to serve those around him, even those who would betray him. We are to love like Jesus loves. Here's an example. In John 13, it's the chapter where we have the Last Supper, and Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. The Son of God kneels down and serves those who are around him. He shares this Last Supper with his disciples, and then he gives them these words in John 13, 34, and 35. He says, A new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Jesus fed the hungry. He ministered to and healed the sick. He dwelt among and fellowshiped with the lowly downtrodden of his day. He called his disciples out of fishermen, tax collectors, and others that those looked down upon in society. He dined with prostitutes. He didn't shy away from the lepers. Jesus was known by his love for the people. If you look at John chapter 15, the Gospel of John, you're going to see a lot of repetition from the Gospel of John and this whole epistle of 1 John. Um, and this passage is a good example of that. If you look at John 15, starting in verse 9, it says, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. The emphasis is on love. Yes, we are to exhibit external obedience. But like I said before, it's not a checklist to earn your way into God's graces. When we truly love Jesus, we will obey. How do we keep the commandments? By loving God and loving our neighbor. We give God the proper adoration, reverence, and worship. We don't do it out of obligation. We, don't, we do it because we love him. We love him because he first loved us. He loved us so much that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were completely undeserving. As I mentioned earlier, God is merciful. God is love. This is love. This brings me to my third point, unity. Verse 9, he who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness, 
and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is somewhat of a rehash of the end of chapter 1. The point is fellowship and unity since Jesus is the light. If we are in the light, we are in Christ and we are the body of Christ. We cannot be in Christ and hate our brother. There can't be discord within the body of Christ. Christ cannot be divided. The call all throughout the New Testament is this unity in love. There's this emphasis on oneness. Ephesians 4, 1 through 4 says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. We are to bear with one another in love. And this is not, this is not always easy. Last time I was with you, I emphasized the need for us to show mercy to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Love covers a multitude of sins. We are forgiven, so we need to live like it. The way we live like it is to extend that forgiveness to those who would offend us. And when we see a brother given to trespass, it is in love that we correct him. Not from a place of condescension or spite. Paul says in Galatians 6, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, that means someone who is mature, spiritually mature, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Again, another translation for law there is instruction. You so fulfill Christ's instruction for us. If you look at uh, the Gospel of John chapter 17, that's what we call Jesus' high priestly prayer. After he prays specifically about his chosen apostles, he then prays in verses 20 through 24 about all those who would believe in him. That's us. He says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus desired for our being unified. We're not only Christ's body, but we're all living stones in the house of God, of which Christ is the chief cornerstone. And a house divided against itself cannot stand. We must be united. We are united in Christ, and through Christ, we are united to the Father through Christ's oneness with the Father and His Sonship. The only way we can all be unified is through love. We can appear upright in this covenant community outwardly. We can say the right things. We can even do the right things sometimes. But every one of us falls short. We often pray for the Spirit to help us with our obedience. 
That's a good thing. But how often do you pray that you would love more? How often do you pray that you would be more compassionate? I'd venture to guess most people devote their energy to trying to love God more, myself included. That's pretty common, and that's a good thing. We should. It is the greatest commandment. But Jesus himself said the other is like it. We cannot divorce the second from the first. We cannot say we love God, yet not love fellow image bearers. We are hard to love, but followers of Christ are to be known by our love. Very often we're not, and that shouldn't be the case. We are united in the love that God first shown to us, and we are to demonstrate that same selfless, sacrificial love to others. And we aren't just to do it out of duty. We are to act out of love. Matthew 25, 31 and following talks about the judgment and the separating of the sheep and the goats. The sheep were those who fed the hungry. They clothed the naked. They visited the sick. They took in the stranger. Remember, we are image bearers being conformed to the true image of God, Jesus. Colossians chapter 1. This is why Jesus says, Whoever does so for the least of these did it for me. In Matthew 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. The will of God the Father is that we love God and love one another. It says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I repeat, how we act as Christians must be done from a place of love and not merely external obedience. I want to wrap this up um, with 1 Corinthians 13. Everyone's familiar with it? The love chapter. We're going there anyways, so buckle up. It starts off. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Then in verse 13, And now abide faith, hope, and love, these three but the greatest of these is love. If we don't have love, but are good at outwardly being obedient, then we're just walking displays of moralism. We're a cup with the outside that's clean and that's filthy on the inside. If we don't love God, but just obey the laws outwardly, then we're no different than the Pharisees. We might as well go back to the old covenant system. If love isn't in your heart, and love isn't the motivation for your works and your witness, then all of it is good for nothing. Internally, we need to be driven by love. Externally, that needs to play out in our obedience, and our love needs to be evident and apparent to all. If we're not loving, then what we have is not the truth, or the truth hasn't, hasn't actually be, been, become truth to us.
the biggest part of being in the light that is being in Christ is being filled with the love of Christ. It is our love of God and love of our fellow man that keeps us upright and putting others before ourselves, especially in the sense of not causing another to stumble. Let the word of God and the love of God guide us to be a light to those around us who may be in darkness, to bring them into the light. I've heard it said recently that, quote, it is our role to act on behalf of God to bring about the flourishing in the new creation, end quote. We can only truly act on behalf of God if done so with love. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your love for your love for us sinners, that you sent your Son to die for us. We thank you for your mercy upon us, that you have given us your Son as an intercessor, that he would hear our prayers, that he would hear our confessions, that he would cleanse us from all unrighteousness, Lord. We pray that you would continue to fill us with your love so we could display that love to others, so we could be a witness of your goodness and Christ's love for us to the rest of the world, especially in this dark world. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.